If you are new to us or you're joining us for the first time this morning, you're catching us on the eighth week in our series called Unshakable Hope. So far in this series, I have been insisting upon this idea that we need to see each individual sermon as part of a larger story. We need to see each individual sermon as a small piece of a big puzzle. You see, I believe if we do that, we will emerge stronger in our convictions which underpins this series. And that is to say, our aim for this series is to remind ourselves of the hope we have in Jesus. That is our aim. A couple of weeks ago, I said what we're seeking to do through this series is to do what the 16th and the 17th century Puritans called the art of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Of course, they have learned that art from the psalmists themselves, who when they found themselves in a long period of hopelessness and despair, they take time and look deep within themselves and emerge with this question, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for you will yet praise him in the land of the living. Again and again, we hear the psalmist preaching that gospel to themselves. So that's what we're seeking to do through this series. Of course, we've been learning so far through this series that to be a Christian is to be a person of hope. Hope is one of the marks of Christianity. Scripture speaks of hope as something we have. It speaks of hope as something certain and guaranteed. And it speaks of hope as something we should look forward to. However, when it comes to the, to the business of everyday reality, hope is hard to sustain. Hope is hard to maintain. Every day, you and I are confronted with enemies of hope. As soon as we wake up, we are confronted with things that want to steal our joy and our hope from us. If you have small, school-going children, you will know what I'm talking about. My wife, I hear her saying, wakey, wakey. They pull the blanket, they look at her, and she says, the sun is shining. They pull the blanket back again. And you know that in between that time of wakey-wakey and the time of them going to the car ready, having heard their breakfast, and their bags are full of everything they need with themselves, you have lost part of your joy. There are few words that you need to apologize for. There are few words that you need to even repent for or some thoughts. The thought of selling them. And that is just your children. I haven't mentioned the taxi drivers yet. I haven't mentioned that issue at work or that 
colleague at work. I haven't mentioned you. Because you yourself contribute as well to you losing your joy. Sometimes with rushed decisions. Sometimes with you insisting on wanting that thing, even though you know that you shouldn't have it. So every day you and I are confronted with enemies of hope. Therefore, again and again, we need to be reminded of this hope. It is my prayer that already in the service you've been reminded of the hope you have in Jesus. As you were interacting with your fellow believers at the beginning of the service, I pray that you've been reminded that you belong You've got brothers and sisters. You don't have to face whatever you're going through alone. You've got other people that can lift your arms and come around you and wrap their arms around you. I pray that as we sang those gospel-centered songs, you've been reminded of the hope you have. Some of them are unfamiliar, but they are packed with gospel. And it is my prayer that those words captured your imagination. We've also been learning through this series. Uh, Tim Keller speaks of the mistakes we make when it comes to hope. But through this series, we've been learning that this is not an unrealistic hope. This is not a hope that seeks to deny the reality. It's not a superficial hope. It's not an unrealistic hope. But rather, it is a hope that wrestles with the reality. It is the hope that faces the reality of pain and the reality of uncertainty. Because it is hope in Christ and his cross. And the cross does not deny the reality, but it faces it head on. The cross confronts pain and agony. If you want to know and see the outworking of that reality, you go and follow Jesus in his Gethsemane prayer. I like the modern translation. It says it is the garden of pain, the garden of agony. There you see Jesus wrestling with the reality of the cross versus the will of God. On the one hand, he knows that he must do the will of God. But on the other hand, he knows to do the will of God by going through the cross. It means I'm going to be separated from my father. I'm going to be publicly humiliated. It's going to be a public shame. It got so stressful that his sweat became droplets of blood. So the cross confronts the pain and agony. It does not run away from it. The cross embraces shame and brokenness. That's what we encounter and experience when we participate in the Lord's table. If you are sitting here this morning feeling undeserving of God's mercy and grace, I want to say to you, you are in the good company. You are in the company of Peter. You are in the company of Judas Iscariot. And you are in the company with us. None of us deserves his mercy and grace. 
Isaac Watts in his many um, hymns. He, in one of them, he invites us to come with him to the cross. And he says, as we come to the cross, he wants us to notice something. He says, see his head, his hands and feet. And then he says, as you look at that, you are looking at two things. You are looking at sorrow and you are looking at love coming together. <laughs> Pain and love coming together. Not just any love. He says, love so divine and love so amazing. Coming together with shame, with sorrow. But the story of Jesus does not end on the cross. It goes beyond crucifixion. This is why Paul could say, and God raised him and exalted him to the highest place and gave him name above all other names. And that's what we're talking about, the doctrine of resurrection. And we know that the resurrection, and we've been expounding this, offers us enormous benefits. Specifically today, we want to zoom in and talk about how the resurrection affects how we live every day. Paul wants us to know that we don't have to wait for the end of time in order for us to experience the resurrection. If we believe in Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, we have already experienced the resurrection. That's what today is about. He says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is already taking place as you are sitting here. You've been raised. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. If you belong to Jesus. And this is how Keller expounds this statement. He says, this statement shows how profound the changes are when anyone becomes a Christian. It, does, it is not a matter of turning over a new leaf and working harder at living good life. Rather, it is to be taken from one realm to another realm. It is to be united with Christ. By being united with Christ, you've been resurrected. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. That was the introduction that ushers us directly to this passage. And what I've tried to do as I give you my introduction is to give you the big ideas that if you miss anything in the little sermons that we preach, we're here to remind you of the hope that you have in Christ. And I gave you the nature of that hope that it's not a fragile hope that shrinks in the, in the season of suffering. This hope walks with you through the fires. It is the hope in Christ and his cross. And sometimes we speak of the cross as the rugged cross. Not fragile, but the cross that can face tough times. As we come to this passage, we notice immediately that it's divided into two sections. 
And these two sections are governed by two themes. Two themes that we're going to, to be thinking about that we find in this passage. The first three verses, they speak of despair in man's condition. The second, the, the second half, which is verses 4 through to verses 7, it's hope. So our passage is a mixture of despair and hope. Despair in man's condition and hope in God. Where is that in the passage here? It's there. It's big. It's glaring on us. You were dead in sins and trespasses. One. Two, you were enslaved for you lived for the passions of this world. Three, you were condemned. You were the child of wrath. That doesn't sound hopeful to me. Dead, helpless, and condemned. Verses 4, but God, so rich in mercy and kindness, four verbs that takes up what Christ has done for us. The initiative of God. Somebody said mercy or grace is it's, it's like a vehicle going in one direction. It's God taking the initiative, not you taking the initiative towards him. So what Paul does in this passage, he first goes down to the depths of despair about man's condition. And then he rises up to the heights of hope about God. Paul draws the contrast between what man is by nature and what he may be by grace. What you are by nature and what you may become by grace. That's what Paul is doing here. He's doing this contrast. He, he, he speaks of this contrast first to the recipients of the letter. He talks about them. But also he talks about himself as well. He says, as you leave, as you receive this letter, you are resembling this contrast. You were something else by nature. But now you are something beautiful by God's grace. And that is true of us this morning. If we came to Christ, if we belong to the community of God, if, been, if we've been raised, we also carry this contrast from what we were and what we are. What we were by nature and what we are by grace. So let's look at this contrast together. As we come to this contrast, we notice that Paul is talking about the entire human society. He's not necessarily talking about what we call in our day a degraded society. You know that, the classes that we put around people. That if you, are, you belong to this society, therefore a certain behavior is expected from you. Paul is not doing that here. He's talking about the entire human society. 
He's talking about all men and women, whatever class they may think they belong to. Of course, he begins by saying you, referring to the pagans of, who lived in Ephesus. But at the beginning of verses 3, he says, among these, we. He moves from you to we. He includes himself. He includes not only the Gentiles, but also the Jews and those who were religious and righteous. He says, you too are part of this. All of us had at some point live this kind of life and this lifestyle. And then in verse 3 he says, like all mankind. So this is what Paul is describing here. Humankind outside of God. So here is the biblical estimate of man without God. That's what we're dealing with here. It is a biblical description of the universal human condition. Every man outside God. What is it? How does it look like? Well, we're going to only look at one this morning and I will just run over to the other two. Men are dead. Spiritually dead. You he made alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sins which you once walked. Outside of God, men are dead. This is not a figure of speech as it is in the parable of the prodigal son which Jesus tells us in which when the boy came back from wandering his father said, my son was dead. Now he is alive. That was a figure of speech. But here it is the fact about human condition outside of God. We are dead. Or to use another phrase that Paul uses in this same letter, it, it is to be alienated from God, to be removed from the life of of God. And eternal life is fellowship with God. Jesus told us that. True life, real life, and life indeed, it is to be in relationship with God. And without this fellowship with God, men are dead. They are spiritually dead. It is my prayer that this morning we will recognize the gravity of this what it means for a man to be dead. That human beings who are made by God, made for God, can live their lives without God. Can you think of a friend or someone this morning who is in that category, who lives his life, life that was made by God for God, without God? Scripture speaks of him is that he is alienated from the life of God. Therefore, he is dead. Of course, he may not look dead at first sight. He may have the body of an athlete. 
He may have a lively mind of a scholar. He may have a big and a great personality like a TV star. But when it comes to the things that matter, which is not the body, nor the mind, or the personality, but the soul, that person is dead. He needs to be resurrected. He is blind to the beauties of Christ. He is deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. He is unresponsive to the living God. Men are enslaved. I have no time for those two. And men are condemned. Then we come to this contrast, this beautiful contrast. But God. We've been dealing with this gravitas of man. But now we come with relief to the second part of this passage. And what we're learning here that Nothing less than radical that will change this condition. So we turn here from human condition to the divine compassion. We look at those two big, great words, but God. And these words, they stand against this desperate condition of man. And as they stand against this desperate, they also introduces us to the mighty and gracious activities of God. I hope you, re- you learn that, that these acts of grace are God's initiative. They've got nothing to do with what we have done, therefore we are being rewarded. Now it's God reaching out to us. On the one hand, we were the object of God's wrath, but God had great love for us. Though we were dead, and dead men don't rise again, but God raised us from dead. Though we were slaved, yet God, not only he raised us, but he put us in a place of honor and authority. And then Paul continues to go further to coin three verbs taking up what God has done for us. And as he coined these verbs, he links them, or he links us to Jesus. He says, we share with Jesus in these activities of God. God, in verses 5, made us alive through Christ. Verses 6, he raised us up together with Christ. Again in verses 6, he made us sit with Christ in heavenly places. These three verbs, they are related to three successive events that have taken place in the life of Jesus. His resurrection, his ascension, and his session. In other words, when he was seated at the right hand of God. However, here, Paul is not talking about Jesus. He is talking about us. He is talking about us as those who have shared in these events. These events are important in the Christian theology because they are part of historical faith. And it is amazing for us 
that we can share with him in this. He is saying to us, if Christ was raised, we too have been raised. If Christ was exalted in the highest place, we too have been exalted into the highest place. Everything Christ has becomes ours as well. While we live here on earth, we also live in the heavenly places. That's what it is to be a Christian. It is to be united with Jesus. And here is one word I'd like to give you. As something that you can meditate on, that we can learn from these two contrasts. Yes, we must go to the depths of despair about man's condition, and it must upset us. But we must not end there. We must also move on and say, but where is God in the picture? But God, by His grace, but God, by His grace. Can you remember those words in the course of this coming week? As you reflect in your condition or in a friend's condition and you feel the depth of it, but don't reach the conclusion before you invite God into that situation. Because that word, those two words, but God, they introduces us to these mighty and great activities of God, of grace. And we come in those words to the Lord's table, which is another way of celebrating what God has done for us, what Christ has achieved for us on the cross.